Morning, everyone. There are some uh, really important questions that are important to ask in life, right? I can think of uh, a number of questions that I thought about that are uh, that are pretty vital to uh, to ask. When I go to the store, a question that I should ask is, should I or should I not buy this? Because if I don't ask that question, what happens is I can end up buying a whole lot of stuff I don't need or buying or not buying things that are necessary at the moment. If I, uh, One of the great questions I've asked in life is, will you marry me? And I'm really glad I asked that question uh, to Sylvia. And it was one of those questions that really changed the course of my life in a lot of ways. Um, another question I've learned to ask is, what is this button for? Before I push it, that's probably pretty important, right? Because what happens if I just push buttons and don't ask, should I push that button? It doesn't go very well. Questions are uh, important things that lead us to right answers or good places in life. And I think we see that in Scripture as Jesus, at, at times, asked a lot more questions than him saying anything in order to get people thinking. A question that all of us have asked at some point in time is why am I a Christian? Why am I doing this? Why am I sitting here today coming to uh, assemble with God's people and uh, not doing something else? Why do I choose to make decisions that honor Christ instead of just doing what I want at any given time? Or another question that is similar is, is there really a God out there? Now, the next uh, six weeks or so, uh, we're going to talk about some of these questions that are very important. Uh, There's a book that I've come across, and there's many like it, but Timothy Keller, The Reason for God, he shares a lot of uh, information out there uh, that deals with this question here. Is there really a God? Because how we answer that question makes all the difference in the world in the direction our life takes. But it's a difficult question to ask, isn't it? For us as Christians, you may be sitting there thinking, okay, Chris, I'm already there, I'm fine, God is there, I don't need to ask this question again. But there's people all around us, that are asking this question, is God really there? Uh, I know that the Bozeman Chronicle a while back said that on any given Sunday, there's less than 10% of the people in this valley are in any type of, are meeting in any type of church gathering whatsoever. So this is a question that 90% of the people around us, if I can say that, are at least asking on some level or at least wrestling with on some level. Is there really God there and is it worth doing anything about? It's almost like a... Uh, a judge that sits, uh, a bankruptcy judge, that sits on the bankruptcy hearings of a large, very valuable, very important company. And the judge himself or herself has a lot of stock in the company. It's a bit of a conflict of interest in ways because this isn't a question when we ask, is there something out there? Is there a God there? It's not one of those questions that we can step aside and wrestle with in an impersonal way. Because the answers for it make all the difference in the world for my life. And, uh, and so we have to, uh, it just changes how we ask the question. So I'm going to share a few things uh, with you that have been helpful for me. And hopefully it strengthens your faith and helps you strengthen the faith of the people around you. But before we get into any of this, there's a couple of things I want to, to a couple of analogies to use. And the question is, can we really prove 
that God exists. Now, if I ask you that question, some of you would say yes, 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 and some of you would say no, 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 absolutely not, largely based on how we define the term prove. Okay? Think about it in these terms. There was, in 1961, the Soviet Union were the first, uh, first people to send someone into space. The cosmonaut, that's their version of astronauts. We call them astronauts. The Soviets called them cosmonauts. And the gentleman's name was Yuri Gregarian. He was the first person into space. And some of you, do you know what he is quoted as saying? He's quoted as saying, as he went into the, out of our atmosphere, I looked and I looked and I looked and I didn't see God anywhere. And the Soviet machine got a hold of that quote and continued on and shared it and repeated it and as a way of saying, see, secular atheism works for us and look at our system. It works because we went out there and uh, there was no God. We saw proof. There it is. Now, it came out a few years ago. One of uh, uh, Yuri's co-workers and uh, one of the fellow cosmonauts said, that's not what happened. Yuri was uh, quoted as saying that, but Yuri actually was, uh, he feared God. He was actually uh, uh, active in his faith despite uh, the communist system we lived in, and he really didn't say that. But what happened is Khrushchev said it and quoted it at a big rally, and uh, for the rest of his life uh, he was stuck with that quote. But the idea being is that I can go into space and I can look around and God's not there, so he must not be there. Well, at the same time, a person was living uh, in uh, C.S. Lewis. is one that wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He's one that I've followed a lot. He was an English professor, wrote a lot about uh, the Christian faith and trying to give muscle to, uh, to questions, if people, if their head got in the way of them believing, then C.S. Lewis was one that tried to walk alongside and, and share. And he said, wait a minute, this doesn't work, because if you go into space and you look around and say, God is not there, that's kind of like Hamlet going to his attic and saying, I don't see Shakespeare anywhere. And if you think about that for a minute, what he's saying is, Shakespeare being the author of the play Hamlet, Hamlet can't very well go into his attic, look around and say, wait a minute, I don't see Shakespeare, so Shakespeare must not be there because Shakespeare created Hamlet. Hamlet's not in a position where he can prove that Shakespeare is there or not just by walking into his attic. Just like we can't go into space to prove that God is there or or especially disprove that God is there, that doesn't work that way. And another analogy he used is trying to prove that God exists is like looking into the sun. Now, I remember when I was a kid... My parents told me, don't look into the sun because it's bad for your eyes. And I remember trying, thinking, well, I want to see for myself if that's the case. And look into the sun, and man, it hurts. And I learned real fast that that is a bad idea because the sun's rays are so powerful, it's damaging, right? So kids, don't look into the sun. It doesn't work, right? It's a bad deal. But the analogy is trying to see God is like looking into the sun, it's too powerful for us to navigate and negotiate. In fact, we see that in Scripture a lot. Aren't people terrified when they see God or see some part of him? You remember when uh, uh, as Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, God says, I'll put you in a rock and I'll cover you up and so you can see part of me, but you cannot see me face to face because I'm too powerful for that. And we may not be able to see God by looking at him, 
but we can sure see, if we turn around and see the sun shining on everything else, we can see fingerprints or clues of God all over the place, can't we? Uh, there was, uh, uh, there's books and essays and all sorts of uh, different writings that have come out that have shared that there's somewhere between 20 and 35 or more of these fingerprints outside of Scripture, just looking around us, from philosophy or from looking at ourselves or, or nature, that we can look around and say, huh, there is a fingerprint of God that helps me see that something is there, that this isn't all by accident, that this just didn't plop out of uh, some, a- some atoms running into each other. And so I'm going to share just a few of those today, and believe me, there are many, many more. And if you, I'll give some uh, books that you can look at at the end that help you on this journey, if you want to go deeper and you want to wrestle with this. But here's a few things that are helpful, I think, to be able to look at as clues or fingerprints that God has left us, that he is there. The first is the Big Bang. Okay, now when we talk about the Big Bang, oftentimes we talk about uh, evolution or uh, you know, biological evolution, that sort of thing. But I want us to consider this in a different, uh, different light. I know I've known a few different astronomers and people who uh, just have either professionals or people that are, uh, that's their hobby and they love to look at the stars. I have a friend in Great Falls that we go out to his house and he had this big telescope and he would point his telescope up in the sky and say, that's the whatever, whatever, whatever galaxy. And I would look through the telescope and there's this galaxy up there that I'd never seen before that had arms that are wrapped around and these stars that are out there and it just looks like a star and I've never seen anything like that before. And then he would point it somewhere else and all that. And I remember him and and many others have shared that it's amazing how you don't have to be, you can look around and you can see with any type of great instrumentation that our galaxy is expanding and going out in all sorts of of directions. It's not just static, it's not just there, but it's, it's expanding. And the question we've got to ask is, where did that expansion start? Because if there's an expansion, then it had to have started somewhere, right? And that's the great question. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is the greatest presupposition. Uh, questions of where we came from and how we got here oftentimes just start with, here we are, now how are we going to wrestle with this? But who we are as Christians, we go back one more step. Before any of that, before here we are, God was there. In the beginning, God. That's where it all starts. And not only that, Hebrews talks about in 11, chapter 11, verse 3, by faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what was seen, what is seen, was not made out of what was visible. So something came from nothing. Now, we have some science people here, right? Science people, can something come from nothing? Doesn't work. We can't do it. It's impossible. But somehow, we look around our universe, and something did come from nothing. If there's this giant bang somewhere, something came from nothing. There's a beginning. And maybe that doesn't do anything for you, or it doesn't do anything for some people in the world. But for me, I look and I think, oh, man, that points to some beginning somewhere. And what started all this? In the beginning, God. God is there. God started all this. And here we are. Here's another clue or fingerprint that we see God has left. 
this cosmic welcome mat. It's amazing to me, and I am not a science type. Uh, I've dabbled a little bit. I've passed my classes when I took them years ago. But I remember my science professors, even my chemistry teacher, who who is an atheist, shared how tough it is for life to exist as we know it here. I think George shared some of that here a while back when he shared on Sunday morning. Because if gravity isn't exactly right and the pull of our earth isn't exactly right, then we would either fly away from the sun or fly towards the sun. And there is this balance that is so delicate for us to be able to live here. The air that we have, even our sister planets around our our solar system, don't have air that we can breathe. In fact, if we were dropped on any of those planets, we would die instantly. But somehow, some way, right here, we have just the right formula of hydrogen and oxygen to create air that we can live a long time breathing and taking care of our bodies. We live in a place where the temperature is just right. If you go across our galaxy, there are places where the temperature is way, way too cold for us and way, way too warm for us. And the possibility or the way that the environment where we can live is so narrow. But yet, here we are. We have this cosmic welcome mat that is here for us to survive and thrive. We have moisture that uh, comes on our earth that we don't have to manufacture, but it's there. And we have enough to drink. We have enough moisture that comes down our crops that tends to sustain the earth around us. We have all of those things that happen. And there's, there's dozens more that we could talk about and things that are way above my pay grade and my understanding. What we ask ourselves is that happen by chance or is there something there that has designed this beautiful, amazing cosmic welcome mat for us to be able to exist in? We think about it this way. Um, someone's got a, a really good mustache and beard. Irv is there. Okay, Irv. Irv's got a great beard there. Hey, just imagine Irv is living back in the 1860s. And he is gold mining up in Virginia City. He's panning and, and he's, he's working hard all day. And let me digress here for just a minute. Irv goes in to play some poker as he's got more gold than he needs for that day. And he sits down at the poker table and he has dealt some cards. And the game continues on and Irv lays them all down and he has four aces and he takes the table. And he takes all that gold dust and the nuggets that were discovered in that day, he takes them over to himself and he decides to stay at the table for another hand. Cards are dealt and Irv is dealt four aces again. And he plays out that hand of cards and he takes home all the gold nuggets and dust that is set on the table again. He plays a third hand and four aces come up again. And he thinks, man, I'm on a roll. This is great. This is awesome. And late into the night, the 27th hand, he gets four aces again. And it just continues on and on and on. And every time the cards are dealt, there's four aces. What do you think the rest of the people around that table are going to say? Calamity Jane, all of those that ran around Virginia City, are they going to say, boy, Irv, your luck is just great tonight. Lucky you. How is that? that that's just, that's just uh, amazing how that's all shaken out. There's nobody around the table who's going to say that. Because by the 27th hand, 
the revolvers and the skin and knives are going to be coming out saying you're cheating somewhere because the odds don't make that possible. Now, are the odds possible that you can draw 27 four aces in a row? It's possible. None of us are going to believe it's going to happen because the odds are so small. And the fact, or the idea that this world just came into being somehow through a series of accidents to make this beautiful cosmic welcoming mat here would cause any of us, if we're to be honest, to say, oh, no, the odds are really, really against that. That's not likely that that's going to happen. Let's look at some scriptures from Job. This is Job, or God responding to Job in chapter 38. After Job has wrestled with why he has been afflicted by uh, some really difficult circumstances, and God responds, and he doesn't answer the way that Job may have liked, and He doesn't give a lot of specifics about Job's situation. But what he does, and this is just a few verses here, what he does is say, you weren't there when I created all of this, Job. Trust me, it's going to be all right. It says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? What is the way to the abode of light? And where does the darkness reside in? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the paths to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you are already born. You have lived so many years, Job. All these cosmic lights and darkness, can you, you don't even know where they come from, Job. Don't sit there and question me. All right? And not only that, who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? Can you control any of that, Job? The earth is made so that it sustains itself like that? Or do you know the laws of the heavens... Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you? Here we are. Job, there's a lot of things that I appreciate about you, man. That's why you were put in this situation. But you don't know all this stuff. Look at what I have done to create the world. And you read... Or excuse me, Job 38. It's really fascinating. He talks about the wild donkey that goes out that just does whatever he wants and he's still provided for. And God says, are you there when does give birth in the wild? Are you there? Do you help that process? I do, Job. As God has said, I have created this great cosmic welcoming mat for life to exist. That's what I've done. And that is a fingerprint or a uh, clue that God is there. Does it prove by scientific experiment that God is there? No, we can't do that. Like Hamlet looking for God in his attic, remember. But as people who are created in the image of God, people with thinking process, doesn't that cause us to look around and say, man, there's got to be something more there, right? It touches us deeply that way. God has left us another clue in the consistency of nature. This is similar to the cosmic welcoming mat, but the idea that nature continues on and the sun rises every morning, the stars come out, the seasons change, and we just continue on. That's one that maybe we take for granted, 
but in the philosophy community, they really wrestle with. Who says that everything is stable, yet it is? We have no reason to believe that it needs to be stable. Why doesn't the earth just fly off its axis in one direction? Any number of things can happen at any given moment, but yet it doesn't. And we've wrestled with that as, as humankind forever. I wonder how many people have lost their lives to human sacrifice because people that lived in situations and contexts where they uh, worshipped different idols said, we need to do these sacrifices so that the sun will come up the next day. That's where you have the sun god, the moon god, all those. And great cost is given to try to ensure that the sun will come up the next day or will come around the next year. Now, Even the Native Americans, some of them did those things. The Aztecs, definitely. You go down to South America, all over Africa. There's a long history of sacrifices being made, human sacrifices being made to make sure the sun comes up. But yet now, we live in societies where that sort of thing is not happening, but yet the sun continues to come up. And the moon continues to rise. The earth continues to sustain life day in, day out. Doesn't that cause us to think, man, maybe there's a fingerprint or maybe there's a clue from nature here that there's something greater that is out there. Psalm 19, I've used this scripture before, says the heavens declare the glories of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech and night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech, they use no words, no sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. In other words, we wake up every morning and God continues to sustain things because that's what he does. But for us, that should be a fingerprint that we can look around and say, man, there's something there that is bigger than just me. I think we can look at uh, another fingerprint of beauty and meaning. There's, uh, if we look at things from the perspective of evolutionary biology, that all the responses we have, the feelings we have, are just a response that was built into us over time or developed over time to help sustain our species and so when you look at beauty, those feelings that arise are just feelings that are created at some point, not created, but, but evolve at some point in time because somehow they help further our species. Like we look at something that's beautiful and, and there's some response within us and we think that must have served somewhere for humans to gather food over there. Or we look at someone of, um, and think, man, they're beautiful and are attracted to them and uh, the response is, well, we, uh, that is, was evolved into us at some point in time because of uh, uh, our need to perpetuate our species. And maybe there's something much more to it than that. If you think about it from this perspective, is when we look at something that is beautiful and there's a response in us, maybe there's unmet expectations or desire for unfulfilled desires that is you know, that, that comes from us deep down. Think about it in this way. Um, if there is, uh, when we become hungry, what does it lead us to? Come on, say it. If you're hungry, 
you eat. There's an unmet desire that food is out there somewhere that I need to eat. Or if there is, an, a, if I get tired, what happens? What's the natural response? To go to sleep. Yes. Unless we're a toddler, then the response is the opposite. Scream and holler and stay awake as long as possible, right? Yeah, that's the other response. But we grow to learn that if I'm tired, there's sleep. There's in a desire for, for that is unfulfilled, but the fulfillment is out there somewhere. Or, for example, if I'm lonely, what happens is I seek friendship, right? Friendship is out there. It's out there somewhere. And so maybe there's something to that, is that when we see something that's beautiful, and I was talking with Karen and Carl this morning, as their drive-in, they saw the same thing I did, is over the bridgers as the sun was just coming up down to the south part of the bridgers there. Did you see the moon? It was just a little sliver up there, and it was gorgeous. It was beautiful. When I took my daughter to work last night, we drove into Belgrade from just across the interstate there, and the alpine glow on the bridgers, I love it. Whenever that happens, you know what I'm talking about, where the bridgers turn pink, orange, like they're on fire? It's called alpine glow, and it's beautiful, and it happens here like it doesn't in many, many places in the earth. And you look at that, and it does something to me. It does something deep. And when that happens, I can't just say, man, that's an accident. Man, that's just atoms or, or chemicals that are reacting in my body. Maybe it is that. But just like sleep or tired, being tired leads to sleep, like loneliness leads to friendship, just like hunger leads to food, maybe that unmet desire deep inside me is, is shouting, something else is there. Something that has created something so beautiful that can stir your heart is there. This isn't just an accident. This is something that is much, much greater and much deeper than that. And when we see the rainbow, as God said, or the... Um, Alpine glow or the moon or the sunrise or sunset or whatever, there's a fingerprint of God saying, Hey, here I am. I'm making this beautiful for you. It's awesome. And it causes us to look towards Him. Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. There's something that God has done in creating beauty. Beauty, and when you go back to the first account of creation, God made it and it was good, or he made it and it was beautiful and it was awesome. And somewhere in that, he's placed a response towards eternity. When we look at beauty and we think, wow, there's something more to this than just here it is. Someone is behind all of this. Now, there is, um, some would call, the clue killer. And there's, you can read a lot more about this. And I'll just share uh, some, of, some thoughts here. Is that if we approach things from the perspective of evolutionary biology, which is popular in our world, it starts with there was a great accident that happened. The right atoms crashed together at the right time that created the right chemicals, that created the amino acids, the, the building blocks of life, and here we, we go from there. And that's it. Then what happens is our species uh, submit to this, over long, long periods of time, this adaptive evolution that just continues on and continues on, and we evolve as we go, and um, just for survival. And so our belief and reason is that like I mentioned, there's just 
these atoms and everything is biological that, uh, that, that creates the reasons and the beliefs that uh, are turned into actions. And I don't, think it's, uh, I don't think it's coincidence that in the last century, the three greatest massacres that happened of human life were led by leaders that had one thing in common. They had many other things maybe in common, but one thing specifically is said that God is not here. Because if God's not there, then it's all just biology and there's no right and wrong. And really uh, what motivates me is my own personal well-being and my own personal happiness at the moment and I'll do whatever I want. And that's what my thought process is. But here's something different. When we go back a step further and say, in the beginning, God, God has designed something really amazing. And not only has he designed and created something amazing, but he did it because he loves us, as Scripture reveals to us. And not only has he done that, but he has revealed Scripture. He's revealed himself in all sorts of different ways, through the fingerprints that we talked about, through Scripture, through many, many other things that we'll talk about in the next weeks and the way that God has revealed himself. But that changes my belief and how I reason through things, and it creates action in my life that is full of meaning. I am doing right because God has created me to do right, and it's to bless others like he has blessed me. And that is what I'm placed on this earth for, and I have a mission, and I have a purpose, and I'm going to dedicate my life for that, and it's very different. But think about this for a second, and this is one that, uh, that my mind had to wrestle through a little bit this week in trying to think of how to communicate this. But if someone comes from the perspective of there is evolutionary biology and there is nothing before that, there is nothing else at all, it's just that, just this great accident. Well, what a person has to run into is trying to figure out all of my reasoning and all of my thought process is how can I trust that thought process to be anything remotely close to being right because if, every, if it's all just chemicals that are that are firing and that's nothing more than that, then how can I trust anything that I perceive or I see? Whereas we would say something different is we can trust it because we see the fingerprints of God revealing himself all around us all the time. And maybe if we take a step back and say this desire, this desire that we have in and of itself, for objective reason, whether we believe it's possible or not. Some of, uh, I've, I've known some people that were claimed to be atheists that were some of the tremendous fine people in what they did with their life and their actions. And they had this great desire for objective reason and objective knowledge. And I can't help but think that maybe that in and of itself is a clue of God. Is that we are created in the image of God and by that, there's something about all of us that desires to look for him, even if we wrestle with what that looks like. So let's go back to this uh, discussion of Hamlet looking for Shakespeare in his attic here in just a, for just a minute. I'm going to put up some, uh, some books up here, and these are in your sermon notes. Uh, C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, is one of the classics. Francis Schaeffer, The God Who Is There, is another one that is... Uh, if a, you want to get your mind working on something, that's, those are helpful. Timothy Keller and N.T. Wright are two that are still living, and they're sharing some of these same type of discussions about the fingerprints of God now. And so those books are books that you can get a hold of, and if you're um, 
Your mind needs something to work on to see God there. These will be helpful for you, I believe. Now, whenever I reference and recommend a book to you, okay, don't read it and say, oh, this book said such and such. Chris must believe that that's not, okay. There's, every book has bones to pick out, I think, okay? And just like, I think as I preach and I teach you, there's times where you have to, um, the, my own human side comes through and you grow and filter even through my own shortcomings, okay? That's true of all of us. That's true of every book, every situation. But I found that those books are ones that help give muscle to my faith. And some of those, I'll be taking, using some of those materials from those books as we go on in the next weeks. But let's go back again to Hamlet going up to his attic to look for Shakespeare. If we think of God out there as a God who is maybe this great author or this great playwright. Okay, now the analogy breaks down. Let me take a time out here for just a second. Because with an author and a playwright, they write the story and people don't have a choice. Okay, that's, that, the analogy breaks down there. But just imagine as God is this great playwright that is writing this beautiful history of this creation. And he continues to write and he continues to create. And mankind goes along. And as Paul talks about, as he speaks to the Areopagus in Acts 17, he says, God has done all these things so that you will reach out to him and perhaps find him. In other words, God is leaving his fingerprints everywhere for you. In other words, God is this great author that has come along and is writing this great, amazing play. And he continues to write his fingerprints into it so that we can look around and say, he's here somewhere. We can't see him. I can't touch him. I can't stand face to face and have him respond to me. But he's there because I see it everywhere. But more than that, his God as an author has wrote himself into the play. In Jesus Christ, coming to this world as God himself, living a perfect sinful life and saying, now I want you to go and imitate me for the rest of your life. God has shown us who he is by the life of Jesus Christ. And uh, next week we're going to take some time and look closer into ourselves. How do we see God in us and being people that are created in the image of God? And how can we see that around us? My hope for you this week is that you go out and you look around, that you can be more aware than you ever have before, that there's fingerprints around us that God continually leaves for us. He's the sun and he's shining all over his creation, his, uh, his good works, his clues and his fingerprints saying, I'm here, come find me. And I hope by doing so that every one of us can share with the people around us that, hey, look, look, you can see God's there. He's there somewhere. And our influence and our discussions just bring everybody around us just a little closer to this God that is truly there. And that's one way that we can live out the abundant life of Jesus this week. If you'd, uh, you'll have opportunities to discuss some of this further in your life groups. If you'd like to become a Christian today, now's a great day to do so. If you like prayers of the church, the elders are waiting in the back. Just head to the back. And let's uh, go ahead and celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and then we'll sing our way back out into the world after that.